It's February 22nd, 2017, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and, of course, startup scene. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. After checking the local SciTech calendar, we'll get an update from Kim Binstead and Tristan Bassenwait about high seas. And, of course, that's the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation focused on preparing for the long-duration Space Missions to Mars. Now, on the tech calendar, Open Data Day is coming up on Saturday, March 4th. The theme for this year is storytelling with data, Code for Hawaii, and, of course, Bert co-founded that great organization, is hosting the Honolulu event at the Manoa Innovation Center, and you'll find uh, that it coincides with International Open Data Day and is being coordinated across the country by Code for America. At the Honolulu event, there'll be speakers representing the ACLU, the Grassroots Institute, there's going to be a data portal showdown, and there'll be an educational track where you can Learn the tools necessary to tell stories with data, including how to use source control, command line tools. Wow, sounds very geeky. (laughs) And tools to help visualize that data. My favorite. Now, finally, for those interested in working on real projects, there'll also be a project track with several real-world projects to work on that are focused around open data. And for more information, you can find it at meetup.com slash code for Hawaii. We'll also put the links at bitemarkscafe.org. Well, you know, and I'm actually going to be doing a project at the Open Data Day. Shocking. Yeah, and it's going to be exciting. I'm going to have people go through the city council website and see if they can find the find the bill. That would be fun, you know. And I want to get their feedback and and uh, response because I'm helping to redesign that. Anyway, on Wednesday, March eighth is Startup Entrepreneur Day over at the Capitol, sponsored by the High Technology Development Corporation. The day begins with a technology fair on the fourth floor of the Capitol with local companies showing off technologies they've developed. Then at noon, a Shark Tank-style pitch event where legislators will judge startup pitches and pick their favorite business ideas. Space is limited for attendees, and that's because lunch will be provided to those who register. So to sign up for the Startup Entrepreneur Day, you can go to techday2017.eventbrite.com and, of course, we'll have that link up on our show notes at bitemarkcafe.org. My favorite. Yeah. Now, joining us today are Kim Binstead and Tristan Bassingthwaite. Kim is a is the principal investigator at the UH... Uh, at the High Seas at Project. At the High Seas Project, yes. as <laughs> That is true. And, of course, uh, Tristan serves uh, as a crew architect and is currently a, <laughs> a doctor of architecture. And he's actually going to be defending his dissertation quite soon. Right. And of course, what we want to learn is what are, <laughs> what are the, um, what are we learning about the high seas missions? There's been several of them already. Mm-hmm. And of course, first we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Great to be here. It's nice to be here. Welcome back. Now, Kim, you know, we've been wanting to have you back on the show ever since uh, we had you first on the show, which, Probably was like the first uh, crew that went out, and there have been several. This is like crew number five. Five, crew five, yeah. And the last crew, which Tristan was on, was a whole year-long mission. And this latest one is an eight-month mission. I would like to get you to maybe tell us a little bit about what you might have learned from the last mission, and how did that frame up this current mission? So we've changed the research focus of the project. The last three missions, so that was a four-month, an eight-month, and a 12-month long mission, um, those three were all about crew cohesion and performance. So uh, how do you um, support a crew so that they can stay high-performing and stay cohesive over these long-duration missions? But the current mission and the next one, two eight-month missions, are focused on crew composition. So how do you choose a crew 
so that they're able to stay high-performing over long-duration missions. So because of that shift in focus mm. and because we wanted to have multiple crews, we decided to uh, shorten the length a little bit. We didn't need to go for the full year. And if it's going to be two missions, I would imagine, are there going to be very explicit differences between the, the philosophies or the priorities in selecting the crews between the two? So you kind of have a a delta to compare, or is it really more broad than that? Not, no, it's not so much a difference between those two. Mm. Uh, it, instead, what we're doing, we're actually collaborating with the Mars Society. They have a different analog habitat in Utah. Oh. And so they run relatively short missions there, so typically two weeks long. So we're also getting data from them. So we're using those shorter missions to test out a bunch of ideas, to develop uh, a plan for crew selection, and then we use our longer missions to validate that plan or oh, test out that plan. I was kind of imagining, like, you know, you get all the introverts in one <laughs> and all the extroverts in another and just see what happens. But again, I tend to always try to frame these as a reality TV show. Well, uh, <laughs> so I'm wondering, and, uh, you know, I don't know if, Tristan, you are <clears throat> a part of, you know, determining what the crew composition is like, but how would you differentiate, and maybe, Kim, this is kind of your question, how would you differentiate the crew in let's say, Crew 4, and their general characteristic, and Crew 5? Well, I can't really speak to that directly, uh, but one thing that's really noticeable is that each crew does have its own personality, Mm -hmm. and we're just starting to learn the personality of the new crew. They've only been there a month, so I haven't quite put my finger on it yet, but uh, (laughs) no, they're they're a good bunch. They're very, uh, very steady. very uh, professional, and I think uh, I think they're going to have a good eight months. Now, Tristan, you were part of the previous mission, the year-long mission. Um, I joke that maybe the reason why the upcoming, the current mission, and the next one is eight months is because you've demonstrated that people go batty after a year. But uh, since that time, I mean, have you had a lot of opportunities to, uh, to reflect on that experience? Was a year um, in this isolated environment something that had a more lasting impact on you or your perception of things? Uh, yeah. I mean, when you first get out, you don't really notice so much because you're still sort of um, transitioning back to Earth and getting used to people and everything again. But um, I basically immediately started um, fall term at grad school, and I'm in the spring now. Mm-hmm. And um, – Sort of reestablishing the familiar routines you used to have, uh, seeing all your old friends, um, you sort of fit back into the life you left behind a little bit, and it uh, underlines how you've changed, um, shows you sort of the new ways you were thinking, and in the case of, uh, I don't know, maybe having a little bit of uh, decompression sickness from being gone for so long, it definitely can help bring you back and settle you down again and just sort of reintegrate you back into society. Do you um, have any sense as to, you know, I'm kind of going back to this whole uh, crew dynamic were you able to identify things about the crew that might have been a little better had certain characteristics characteristics been uh, chosen, I guess, as crew mates? Um, I mean, perhaps there's always, um, even in your friends or family, mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, if my brothers let me use the game controllers more often as a kid, <laughs> I would have had a much better time. Uh-huh. Um, but there's always something you uh, find out eventually about um, a personality or um, – relationships you have with anybody where you could always say, oh, if I could change this, it might be a little bit better. But um, ultimately, you can't. So you just have to get used to uh, the way people are and try and uh, focus on the good traits more or less. So you got your master's degree in architecture. You're about to defend your doctorate in two days, you said? Uh, yeah, I'll submit the 95% in two days oh and gosh. then have the oral in like uh, four or five days. Well, I'm glad you took time out of that 
crazy schedule to, to come and join us. Um, is there any, uh, are you going to be uh, collaborating in any way or just, uh, are you just a fortunate observer of the current mission and the next mission? Or how, how, do, how, do, how are alumni, you know, involved perhaps right, into yeah. high seas? Yeah. Uh, some of the alumni can go on to be, uh, say, mission support or um, help out in that respect. Um, I would have enjoyed doing something like that, being, you know, first-tier support or something, writing the crew, helping out with things like that. But um, at least for this mission. Your studies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I don't even get to sleep all that much. So, right. <laughs> Well, I think um, I, I do actually want to talk to you a little bit about what you have uh, done your dissertation on because I think that is some has some relevance to – well, in fact, maybe I'll ask you that. I mean, what what have you learned and how, does, how has that <clears throat> been incorporated into – your dissertation that you're going to defend in the next couple of days? Um, mostly I'll be looking at uh, the sociological, psychological um, effects of isolation or confinement on uh, missions, as well as mm. how to respond to those architecturally through the experience and environment mm-hmm. of a habitat. And then the actual design portion is just a completely for fun redesign in high seas as if I had all the money in the world and could change it into this thing and sort of enjoy being a crazy space architect. So um a lot of that is based in research because I have to be able to cite it, but um, chapters can end or certain points mm. where maybe I can't get enough information can be um, sort of based on personal experience and you can drop into the first person and lend another perspective. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of how design might impact a uh, crew, but certainly I can also see there are budgetary reasons why you would use the same facility and also you kind of want some things consistent in order to have to be able to make observations. We'll continue our conversation in a little bit about uh, the High Seas current mission and we're speaking with Kim Binstead and Tristan Bassingthwaite. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Kaiser Permanente and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to Bike Mars Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking with Kim Binstead and Tristan Bassingthwaite from the University of Hawaii at Manoa about high seas. Now, you know, one of the things that I was looking at in terms of the uh, some of the design of how people will be conducting some of their experiments. Uh, there's this idea of, of low, aut- aut- low autonomy and high autonomy. I guess low crew autonomy, high crew autonomy. What exactly is that? Well, that's a, that's a really good point. So that's one of the changes we've made for these next two missions. So um, when you're going to Mars, you start off close to Earth with a relatively short communications delay, you know, a few seconds when you're in low Earth orbit. It gets longer and longer as you go to Mars. And by the time you get to Mars, it's anywhere around 20 minutes, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, each way communication. And that means sort of by definition, a crew on Mars is going to have to be higher autonomy than the crews on the space station are right now. Because the crew on the space station right now, they don't fly the space station. It's flown from the ground. And they're scheduled down to the minute. Um, and that's just not going to be feasible over these long-duration missions. So one of the things we're looking at over these uh, two eight-month missions is how – uh, higher autonomy affects uh, crew performance, and also how to manage that shift from low autonomy, so the ground has primary control of your schedule, to high autonomy, where the crew have uh, primary control over their schedule, uh, how to manage that shift. Oh, I see. So in the low autonomy, they are still interacting with the, the mission support folks on a fairly uh, low latency standpoint. So there's a lot of lot of interaction. They really depend on what's going on with mission support. Exactly. But then once they're far away, they pretty much are on their own. That's right, certainly in terms of their schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Now, I mean, I think there have even recently been sci-fi films about long-duration missions. I think that they're kind of entering the popular culture. Um, but then I, I like this issue of autonomy because many of the plots kind of surround how do you get control of <laughs> of the ship, for example, if it's on this long-duration mission, but you need to make a change. Um, uh, I know that for uh, previous missions you had like a 20-minute communications delay. Is that what you're going to be playing with, or is there another way to – turn up the knob for crew autonomy? We're actually keeping the delay the same over the whole mission. So it's it's 20 minutes throughout. Uh, but for the, the first part of the mission and the end part of the mission, the schedule is controlled from the ground. So the crew, you know, it's not down to the five-minute level, but down to the hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from a, from a crew, <clears throat> well, from the mission support standpoint, uh, do you and your folks here pretty much maintain that on a on a 24-7 basis, or what is your typical schedule for mission support? Well, what we do is we've got two tiers of mission support. First tier are there during the day, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., hovering in front of their computer waiting for messages from the crew, and they uh, respond as quickly as they can, which, of course, will mean that the crew get a response 40 minutes or so later. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we also have second-tier support, and that's uh, people with uh, a bit more authority, uh, and uh, who are available on a 24-hour basis, but on call. Uh, so um, I'm second to support once a week. Uh, we have other people on other days, and that just means that I, I can't turn my phone off. And if it rings at 3 o'clock in the morning, I might need to run and get on a plane <laughs> to the Big Island. <laughs> now, Tristan, um, I, I, I did want to kind of talk a little bit more about the design because that's your, your the focus of your studies. But again, there are Always our budgetary limitations, structural, physical limitations. But let's do one of those uh, home and garden TV shows. Let's say you had uh, $50,000, $100,000 to implement one architectural change to a Mars habitat based on what you had in your mission. What what do you think is one thing that you would want? Like, is it just a ping pong table? Is it another room? (laughs) Um, Probably the most basic level. It would be interesting to um, sort of replace the racks of plants that we have with an actual sort of greenhouse. Mm, Um, mm. So if you can imagine just the uh, dome we were all living in, put a copy of it right next door, but make it all translucent plastic and then fill that thing with, you know, an apple tree and a bunch of other plants. And, you know, you could go in there and enjoy, uh, you know, just relaxing, (laughs) reading, hanging out, camp out there from time to time. Uh, being able to have that much nature up there, even on the uh, presumption that maybe it's your biological life support system for the simulation or something, mm, mm, mm-hmm. uh, it would be psychologically a lot more fun, give you more space to move. Now, um, Kim talked about uh, high autonomy, and I, 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 I unfortunately haven't caught up on your blogs, and all the crews are st- crew members are still blogging their experiences mm-hmm. on the, the web. But when you hear, like, you know, some crews are – scheduled down to five-minute blocks and you know exactly what you're going to do versus more autonomy. Um, what is that experience like for you in as a as a human of the world? I mean, if you send a message and you need 40 minutes to get your reply back, that's a lot of waiting. Um, did you feel overscheduled, underscheduled, bored out of your mind? What was that like? Uh, you tend to have more free time than you maybe imagine you will. But at the same time, you'll have bursts where you've got geotasks and cooking and hab maintenance and, you know, the weekly chores and everything you need to do. So in the same way anybody in their adult life actually has to go and make sure that they get everything done, we definitely uh, sort of have the same constraints. And usually we'll try and knock it out earlier in the day so you can, you know, enjoy a crew movie or something like mm. that. But um, I think being autonomous, uh, especially for that length of time, I mean – I can't imagine having the ground tell me exactly what to do every five minutes for a year. I would go crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, Kim, <clears throat> over the course of the time that the uh, the high seas 
project has been going on, have has the technology changed at all? And have you gone into the habitat and, you know, when crews come in and, and or actually when they leave and the new crew is about to come in, is there a retrofit that takes place? Do the is there like a a, a a cleaning crew that goes in and <laughs> cleans it all up? I mean, what happens in the off uh, off months? Yeah, well, we do go in and do a basic renovation. You know, uh, uh, steam clean the carpets and paint <laughs> the walls, and and I'm afraid uh, take the TARDIS down. Oh wow! Uh, one of the crews uh, developed uh, a TARDIS mural uh-huh. on the wall made out of tape, and uh, afraid we had to take that uh-huh. down. Oh, oh um, no! <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite. <laughs> I really liked it too. But what are you going to do? Um, and so we basically try to restore the habitat as much as possible to its original state. So the crew come in with something fresh. Okay, so then they have sort of like the the basic uh, uh, layout, and and they can change it however they want to over the period of time. More or less, yeah. Or less? The, you know, the significant part of the space is reconfigurable, mm-hmm. and so the crews kind of set it up the way they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it kind of has to be reconfigurable because they oh. use it for exercise and work and and social hour and you know all of this stuff. Um, and so they need to be able to shift things around. Now, when you are are, are doing things like uh, putting up tardises, it reminds me that you select crews that are always very diverse. It's not all. Um, astrobiologists are all engineers. You, in fact, have had artists mixed in and uh, or people that at least do research and are artists in that respect. I think you had a material artist in the previous segment or maybe um, earlier. Uh, can you tell us about any of the current crew? I mean, what are some of the characteristics or personalities that people might not expect would be playing in a or researching in a space habitat? Well, we are trying to pick people who are as astronaut-like as possible. So, you know, that that determines the basic educational, professional requirements and so on. Um, we also do a lot of psychological screening. So um, that sort of weeds out some of the more extreme personality types. Um, you were oh. looking at Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, people always bring more to the table than their professional background. You have uh, people who bring in a musical instrument or um, who uh, speak other languages. I know one of our uh, one of our crew members um, is uh, fluent in sign language, right? very good in sign language anyway. And that's influenced uh, some of the crew. They've started using sign language when they're out on EVA. Um, mm. And uh, so everyone brings something new to the table. So you always end up with a crew with its own personality. Yeah. Well, this crew seemed very technical because you have people that have actually worked on SpaceX. Uh, there's somebody that used to work at Google. You know, there's there's a lot of, uh, as far as the, the ones that I, you know, kind of briefly ran through, they look like they have very high qualifications in terms of their technical competence. Absolutely. Although I would say that was true for, for all of our crews. We've mm-hmm. always picked people with uh, very high uh, levels of technical competence. Well, yeah. I, I would say that you know the High Seas program from that uh, original um, mission or original project where we talking where we talked we had you on to talk about how to cook and whether something cooked by the crew versus pre prepared and how that would affect to where you are today. I mean, High Seas has a much higher profile. So I guess another way to ask that question is: Has the candidate pool changed as your visibility, perhaps in the space community? I mean, not just nationally but internationally, has grown. 
You know something? We had a lot of interest right from the very start. When I remember for that very first mission, UH put out a press release saying, you know, we're looking for, for crew. And we had uh, about 700 responses. And we had a similar response this time around. Um, now, uh, it would be interesting, actually, to do an analysis of, uh, of the whole pool and sort of figure out its demographics. But in both cases, we ended up with about uh, about 130 who were who met our basic qualifications, so which we then um, brought down to about 30 to interview. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think the pool has changed all that that's much. That's good. Yeah. That's good. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about the um, <clears throat> sort of like the primary mission uh, research areas and, and whether that has evolved over time. We'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after a short break to continue our conversation with Kim Binstead and Tristan Bassingthwaite uh, about the mission to Mars. And, of course, you're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Nohea Gallery, and Straub Clinic and Hospital. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Kim Binstead and Tristan Bassingthwaite about long-duration missions. Now, you know, one of the things that I notice is that there is this area called primary research. And they articulate maybe eight or so of these uh, research areas. And they vary from communications to how to relieve stress and, uh, you know, things like um, going out and doing uh, geologic surveys. Has these mission or these research areas changed, or is this the primary mission for this particular uh, cohort that's out there? So, yeah, the the, the bundle of uh, research projects that is the primary uh, research, that's the NASA-funded research. So that has shifted from this uh, crew cohesion and performance research to crew composition research. Uh, now, some of the sub-projects are still the same because – of course, in order to find out whether you have the right crew or not, you need to look at their cohesion and their performance. So um, some of those uh, projects continue, but the emphasis has shifted. Mm-hmm. Also, some of the projects have developed quite a lot. So, for example, um, we had earlier crews uh, play a game uh, called TPT uh, for Team Performance Task. Uh, and that was basically a, a computer game that looked at their uh, how they're collaborating and competing with each other. And that's come along quite a long way. So the, the latest version of that, which is now called called Cohesion, and yes, it's an acronym, but I, I can't tell imagine. you what it stands for, um, uh, has come along quite a lot. It's got uh, more sophisticated and, uh, yeah. So, Tristan, when, in your experience, in your year-long mission, learning to work with other people and get team tasks done, um, what were some of the challenges and really what were some of the great parts of those activities in the name of research? Uh, probably one of the best sort of results from it is when you're doing something even like TPT and you have to organize it all together and work on it. I mean, whether you're forced or not to, you're actually doing this thing together, uh, even more so for the EVAs where you're actually like physically doing this like hours long thing, quite difficult. Um, It does make you feel a lot closer to each other the same way, you know, growing up together might do something or living through some experience with a group of friends brings you together. So it's uh, definitely fun to have them in there. Well, you know, you, you spoke about the EVA, extravehicular activity, and that's something that Brian Shiro has been kind of involved in. It's called the Asynchronous Geologic Exploration Operations. And it's the, the way I read it, it's comparing your performance as one crew did these, these sort of geologic explorations versus this crew and their doing the explorations. And they, they do some comparison on how well performed one versus the other is? 
Um, it's it's not so much uh, crew versus crew as it is uh, looking at how uh, that performance changes over time and how it varies with the cohesion of the crew. Also within the yeah, same crew. Yeah. Um, between crews as well, but but yeah, mm. and, and that's gotten more uh, more sophisticated as well. So we actually have a, a whole new set of tasks for the crew to be doing um, when they're out in the field. Well, one of the things that was uh, kind of caught my interest on this particular topic was the fact that they go out there and do some geologic survey, and I, I would think that they would probably have a drone to go out there and do a geologic survey. And lo and behold, there is this video that's on. <clears throat> you can actually go and find it. It's a hashtag is uh, Hey Superstar. And it's of a couple of crewmates out on, you know, on uh, Mauna Loa, and they actually have a, some drone footage. Now, That's right. was the drone used in this particular crew, and was that available in previous crews? It, it's a different drone, but other crews have had hmm. drones as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is uh, one of the crew's personal research project is using the drone um, uh, out in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it'll be really interesting to see uh, how that works out. Yeah. That is that is kind of cool. I also yeah. imagine like drones flying in the Mars atmosphere and things like that. But come on, drones are cool. Um, well, I like that these this and the next mission are about crew selection and how you put together a good team. But I did enjoy you looking at Tristan when you talked about extreme personalities <laughs> and you know the psychological <laughs> profile. Uh, what would what would some of those things be? I mean, what are because on on one hand, a strong strong personality has its benefits and its downsides. So um, without outing any applicant, I mean, what are some of the things that uh, you're looking for in terms of that psychological profile? Well, one thing you're looking for is sort of an interesting combination of introversion and extroversion, right? Uh, You need to be someone who uh, gets along with people, but is also okay not meeting any new people for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an interesting balance to try to hit. Um, you want people with good leadership and followership skills. Uh, you want people with people who are very resilient. Um, because one thing that we found is that uh, every crew is going to have its conflict. There's no way to pick a crew that is conflict-free uh, over a long-duration mission. So instead, what you try to do is pick people who respond well to conflict and are able to recover from it and return to a high-performing level um, even after something's gone wrong. You know, <clears throat> Tristan, uh, there's this other uh, research category. It's called crew communications in debriefs. And I'm curious what you might say would be some of the changes that take place. It says uh, the crew communication in debriefs, is the, the purpose of it is to investigate how communications among crew during uh, during requ- required debriefs changes over time. So initially, would a debrief be like, "Hey, buddy, I mean, you know, this is how we, you know, <laughs> how our day went," and then over the time, over maybe you know, month six, month seven, it's like it becomes more and more terse. I mean, what? How does how do these debriefs actually evolve over time? Um, it really depends on uh, the person. I mean, a lot of people may get much more. Um I'd imagine it becomes sort of a, a chore you have to do like anything else. Um, at the same time, it might be a little bit like journaling, which for a lot of people can be pretty cathartic. Mm-hmm. So you might end up getting uh, deeper insights, you know, still short or whatever because there's stuff to do. But um, it really, really depends. Mm-hmm. Kim, I mean, do, are you familiar with this? I mean, how, how do you frame this sort of communication debrief research area? So this is uh, uh, Wendy Bedwell's uh, research project, and uh, what she does is she takes the videotaped uh, debriefs and formally analyzes them. Uh, So there's a whole analysis process uh, that that breaks them down, and then she compares how they develop over time. Although um, I have to uh, disappoint you here because um, with 24 months' worth of 
um, debrief videos over the 4-8 and 12-month mission. <laughs> um, she is just starting in on them. It's going to take her a long so time she's to code all of the these. Debriefs. Exactly. That's she's incredible. going through and coding them all. Yeah. Now, uh, so we've, we're in this uh, eight-month mission. Um, I always enjoy when you release them back to the real world and the live stream videos and everything. When will that be? So that will be September. Okay. Yeah. Um, if somebody wanted to track their progress, read their journals, see these pictures and drone cool drone videos, where would they go? Well, there's our website, which is uh, highseas.org, H-I-S-E-A-S.org. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter. Yep, fantastic. Lots of stuff on Facebook. Well, Kim Binstead is the principal uh, investigator of High Seas. And, of course, Tristan Bassingthwaite was a mission specialist in the last cohort. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week and we're going to talk about Hawaii's aerospace future. And of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. Of course, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And until next week, stay safe, and we'll see you on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. After you.